some of these new machine learning programs for writing are pretty amazing. You know, they, they really question, they really make us question what human creativity is because they're spitting out pretty amazing poems. Hello, the internet. You're listening to Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and also so vain that I think every song is about me. All of them. David Bowie's Space Oddity is about me. Um, I Shot the Sheriff. That one's about me, even though I'm not a sheriff. Uh, that one Mr. Rogers song where he sings about how everyone is special. Yeah, they're, they're all about me. Um, look it up. It's true. Anyway, um, for today's episode, I talked to Dominic Petman, who is a professor of media and new humanities at the New School. Um, interesting guy. Formerly a humanist in the 20th century sense of the word, and now considers himself what you might call a post-humanist, no longer thinks humanity is the star of the cosmic show, whatever that may mean. Um, It was actually a really interesting conversation. Dominic is a very interesting guy. I'll let him introduce himself. I will flip you over to our conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Luke. It's really good to be here. Yeah, Dominic is a professor of media and new humanities at the New School in New York City, author most recently of Peak Libido, what am I forgetting? What else do you do? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I mostly sit here in front of this computer answering emails. So I've, <laughs> I've almost forgotten what I do. But yes, that, that pretty much covers it. I've you know, professionally identified as a professor, but I like to f- pretend that I'm more a, a writer who managed to get, convince people to pay him. <laughs> uh, to get You're paid. living the dream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't realize teaching would come with the gig, but it's apparently a big part of the job. So I do that too. Trying to trying to make a living at just publishing books is not really a thing. <laughs> no, n- not the kind I write. I need some more aliens and uh, vampires and stuff. There's always the next book. Yeah, make. that's right. It is. It's true. <laughs> Introduce some aliens and vampires to that one. Um, so yeah, I think um, what you said was you wanted to come on and talk about how you changed your mind about whether humans are distinct from nature or a part of nature. Is that, is that an accurate summary or? Yeah, that's a big part of it. I guess when, you know, the, the question was first asked, what I changed my mind about, it took me a while to figure it out, but um, definitely a sense of just a kind of humanism, I suppose you mm-hmm. call it. Like I grew up as a humanist. I thought 
we were the main, you know, the protagonist of the cosmic story, and it's mostly about us, and the and the rest is kind of background. Um, it's pretty to look at, and it's a nice sort of uh, context for us to explore and be. But it was mostly about us. Obviously, I'm not alone in that. I mean, you could the history of Western thought, at least, is is uh, could be described as that. So. Yeah, I think I changed my mind along the way that it's it's that black and white, that we are the foreground, human actions are are the main story, and the rest is just scenery. Well, that sounds really interesting. Why don't we just dive right into that? Can you start by maybe defining humanism for me and then talking about where you picked that up, where you got mm. that idea? Yeah, I think... I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid early because it was in my mother's milk and my father's <laughs> whatever beverage he prepared for me when I was a kid. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, I, I mean, humanism, as I see it, there were technically humanists around the late 1900s. No, that was when I was born, isn't it? The late 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the George Eliot and folks were, were even dabbled in, in going to sort of secular churches and worshipping mm-hmm. humanity as this kind of almost quasi-divine force. So, um, But there's also a scientific equivalent of this. I grew up watching things like Cosmos, Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. And even though that's all about the cosmos, there's something about... Um, almost this heroic figure of the astronomer who is there to witness the cosmos. We are the ultimate witness. So there's a sort of scientific equivalent of the Bible. And we are Adam, we are the special Mm. creature. Um, And indeed, this is where I confess my middle name is astronomer because my (laughs) father, my father was obsessed with, uh, the heavens and all of this kind of stuff. He was a bit of a hippie and I'm very glad it's a hard science. It could have been astrologer, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So he, he even had a ring that was in runic. So I think you get a sense of the sort of things he would also read and not get me to read, but this ring said humanity hyphen cosmos. Hmm. And so again, it was this like, we are the cosmic creature we are special because we can look up at the stars and interpret them and wonder about them um which all the other animals allegedly do not so Mm. i really grew up believing this um sort of story and yeah i guess that's where it came from that's really interesting to me um what can can you talk a little bit more about your parents and what they did were they academics as well yeah yeah they were um so, but my, my dad especially was a kind of old school Renaissance guy. He was just interested in everything. <laughs> he was proud of having a, uh, an entry in one of his indexes that said life, comma, meaning of page 76 or something. Like so, <laughs> so I mean, finally we found it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, his field was political science and my mother's was sociology. So there was, there, there was that type of professor back in the seventies and eighties. And I sort of osmosed all that. I mean, and, and then I didn't understand like he didn't understand the benefits, especially professionally of 
specialization, you know, being very specific and narrow. There was always the big questions, the meaning of life. So it was all philosophy and it was um, combined with anthropology, with uh, co cosmology. Yeah, these were, these are, you know, I did inherit a very big telescope. So I was always encouraged to think big, wide, open. Um, but still within that, I mean, the story he used to tell is that um, where my name came from is that apparently, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, the biggest telescope opened um, and somebody pressed the main astronomer. Doesn't this make us diminish us? Doesn't looking at the heavens make us feel tiny and small and irrelevant? And uh, the astronomer says, ah, but man is the astronomer. And so that's the kind of compensation mechanism where it's, yes, we are tiny, but we are the ones who know how tiny we are. So mm. there is some grandeur to that, some nobility in understanding our place in the universe. At least we have this perspective. We have this magnificent science um, to tell us where we are, at least, um, and, part, and then guess from there who we are and why we are. And I don't disagree with that. I don't, I mean, that makes, there's a certain beauty and poetry to that, but it's not the end of the story. I mean, there's that sort of self-congratulatory pat on the back is where a lot of people stop and yeah. where I stopped for, for several years. But mm. then when I went off to study the, the sort of the history of mankind, gender deliberate there, um, you know, I went to university in the 90s and it was the high watermark of deconstruction theory, postmodernism, mm -hmm. and kind of undoing all of those assumptions, those foundational myths about everything. So that's when it's sort of some question marks started to, to fly around. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. This Just this question of like, is there a grand narrative or not? Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that your parents... And you, I guess, as well, are all in kind of the humanities, you know, but they give you a name like astronomer and they, you know, push you to study all these sciences. I assume this was this was this would have been in the 70s, right? When like Jungian Jungianism, if I can say that word, was really big. And this um, idea of the the um, maybe Joseph Campbell is another example of just all these thinkers pushing grand meta narratives. Yes. Yeah. They were definitely on the bookshelves, uh, the whole earth catalog. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, yeah. So just trying to figure out the grand theory of everything, but not in the scientific, hard scientific way, but a, a bit more mythic, like you yeah. say, a grand narrative that includes the collective unconscious and uh, yeah, almost mystical in its sort of sixties um, questioning. How do I want to put this? Do you see a certain attitude of inevitability in that sort of narrative? Like hum humankind is marching toward this future that mm. is, is, was foreordained in the stars or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly tenacious. I don't know how inevitable it is, but it is deeply coded now into to our trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, we might call it Prometheanism. Mm -hmm. would be another name for it that we were the animal that were given fire mm -hmm. and and the gods thought that was a bad idea and now we know why 
um, but obviously the very wealthy people who um, monopolize the headlines and try to fly to the stars, build other worlds and are, are following this logic. Like it, it, it doesn't, the, the, the rest of the planet's collateral damage, as long as we can escape, mm-hmm. um, is, is really the subtext of a lot of this new space race. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's, um, I don't, I hate, I don't like to think anything's inevitable, but there's obviously uh, power differentials and, and therefore whatever becomes the grand narrative is encouraged by those who, who it suits. Sure. So this humanistic milieu that you were raised in, you really see that as having colonization of outer space as like the end goal. Is that kind of, am, am I, I'm just trying to understand exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I was never given, I mean, it was never faded. That that was part of the questioning was like, it's not like there is some destiny we're marching towards in my own personal family okay. mythos. mythos. Um, I just think that's where, you know, if you were reading the whole Earth catalog in the 70s, then there is this detour through California and the Silicon Valley in the 90s, and then it becomes this kind of Promethean arc. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my mother was a class... A sort of classical second wave feminist. So she had no interest at all in um, colonizing the stars and things. I mean, it was left up to me to decide what to do with these big clumsy tools around the question of humanity. Um, but I just, you start to see what an what a invisible assumption it is that we are the main character. And mm. I think that's what I just kept. Um, we could disagree on where we should go, but a lot of the debates still presumed it's all about us. Mm. Um, and so that was interesting. I, I did think I would become an anthropologist as an undergraduate, but um, all those courses on kinship and things um, put me off. They were too detailed and scientific. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I ended up, just going into that kind of cultural theory, English literature um, kind of direction, and then ending up in media studies. And that's, I suppose that's when it started to change because I was very interested in the way technology was developing. I would, I just, the internet had just been opened up as the World Wide Web. This is the mid nineties. Sure. And it was pre-millennial tension. I was a, you know, a guy in my twenties in the nineties. So it was all about that vibe and you know the matrix hadn't come out yet but we were all reading <laughs> cyberpunk you know we were all reading william gibson and sure. neil, neil stevenson and so i was fascinated by what technology how technology was evolving and, and evolving us and that's when it starts if you if you really look closely at technology then the whole um, ideology of the human starts to unstitch because mm. You know, we're, we are supposed to be the, the tool-using animals. But um, it's more complicated than that, I think. I've spent my whole career actually thinking about technology or techniques and, and the degree to which it's a human phenomenon or not. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what makes, how, how do I want to phrase this question? In what sense is technology not a human phenomenon? Let's start hmm. there. Well, I mean, one epiphany happened when a, a 
friend of mine as a student um, asked, I was saying, oh, I'm going to write my PhD on, you know, the role of technology in um, moral panics, for instance. Mm. And he's like, okay, what do you mean by technology? And I, mm-hmm. he, I did this long pause because it, I just assumed technology, we all know what that is. Right? Mm-hmm. It's these machines we're talking through and <laughs> things that go beep. <laughs> but yeah, this is, he was a philosophy student. He was reading people like Heidegger who says that the essence of technology, technology is not technological. Um, so technology is this sort of broad word for intervening in the world or changing the world. Um, but it's, well, this gets really complicated because <laughs> you could argue that Heidegger reinvents a form of humanism even though he's famous for critiquing it. Um, but we, well, we now know the cl- we now know that a lot of animals use tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one easy answer is ethology and the way that ravens will use twigs or that um, monkeys will use various, you know, they, you know, some have been seen with little toolkits for cleaning their teeth and getting food and <laughs> stuff like that. From a certain angle, even nature itself is just sort of one vast technological operation. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if if a nest is is it is a nest completely natural or is it a, just an animal technology? Um, mm-hmm. Termites use all sorts of sophisticated um, air conditioning systems in their mounds. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, but even if you just ask what is a technology? I I often start my classes with this and I start with really obvious examples and then I get more and more abstract. So Mm. something like confession, say, is confession a technology? Mm. Well, for Foucault and for the Catholic Church, it is. It's a way of Mm -hmm. helping. It's a sort of social technology or a way of controlling things. Um, I have a book called Love and Other Technologies where I I argue that love is a kind of form of soft technology, but even something like birds, like how is a bird a technology? But then Hmm. you think of messenger pigeons in the Second World War. Hmm. Um, It's it's more, technology is more about context and the wider assemblage of usage or purposes than it is the essence of an object so Hmm. technology is a kind of orientation toward the world which involves intervening in that world modifying that world um, or communicating with that world and when you start to look at it that way it's not that there are these inert tools that fully formed humans are applying or using it's more like technology is a kind of environment which Um, shapes us as much as we shape it. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I found that um, this is probably way off topic, but (laughs) I found that when most people say technology, they almost invariably mean something invented in the last 10 to 20 years. Obviously every, (laughs) I mean, there's a, you know, it goes by definition, every every human invention is technology. And as, uh, I mean, as you've said it, like there's, a case to be made that almost anything is technology. This is the rub, yeah. So th- th- there's a there's a sort of subfield called originary technicity, which argues that the human was all, always post-human the moment mm. we started using tools because um, mm. even something like a flint, 
um, or an arrowhead is, is a technology. So even before sort of things like language, I mean, that's another soft technology would be something like the alphabet or language. Yeah. For, this is why McLuhan's understanding media is so interesting because <laughs> the media isn't just newspapers and televisions, but um, light itself sure. <laughs> or clothing. So yeah, we were, we were always post-human, even in sort of caveman days, according to some long view, you know, thinkers. I was um, in the early 20 teens, I was working as a, as a high school teacher of various schools for, you know, um, mm. every, every time I went in for an interview for a position, one of the questions would be, how do you use technology in the classroom? Yeah. And yeah. I, I think I was a little too, too uh, philosophical about it for my own good. I was like, how do I not use technology in the classroom? <laughs> that's, like, that's a good answer. Everything about the classroom is technology. Um, yeah, exactly. That wasn't what they wanted to hear. They, they wanted to hear that I was going to like pass out iPads or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no, that's nice. So, Let's let's um let's start there with the technology question. Is that kind of was technology kind of the catalyst for making you question the underlying underlying humanism in your worldview then? Or yeah, I think partly because um, I mean it had been unexamined. This this faith in the human, my humanism wasn't very deep. I just mm -hmm. believed it. Um, I remember even having an argument with a roommate when um you know i think somebody had drowned in a car on a news story and mm. i was up you know i was like oh that's terrible and she was like well it's not as bad as all those chickens in the battery farm <laughs> and i'm like what are you talking about this is a human life you know i was mm. really adamant that one human equals a million chickens or something like mm. that mm -hmm. and um so that's the extent to which i was a humanist mm -hmm. <laughs> when i look back and now it's well. I, I think most of, most the average human, when push comes to shove, will prefer their own species to any other, right? I mean, the modern modern person, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. But then, I mean, but there's also a huge uptick in veganism, for instance. So I sure. think a lot of people are. It's not so clear cut anymore. People are much more sympathetic to the costs of human ways of living i didn't mean to interrupt your narrative there sorry no 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 i think that was my point but yeah um so it was that was part of it and so then i guess i don't know what i was basing that um value on why is human life worth a million chickens for instance mm -hmm. and i didn't really think about that i just assumed it was everyone understood that and it was true hmm. um but then, of course, you know, one of the great things about systematic thinking or being encouraged to do that is you have to justify it. And so, you know, historically, we've invented things like a soul. Descartes famously said animals don't have souls. So they're not really responding. They're just reacting, mm -hmm. which is something not too many people would agree with anymore. But there's mm -hmm. still, this, still this sort of metaphysical divide between humans and other animals as if where well, I mean, the, <laughs> the animal that the, matters i was going to say the word animal comes from animus which means soul right. so i mean yeah. obviously not everyone in the past agreed but descartes about that <laughs> it's true true at least, at least of all the people who decided what to call animals uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean even just saying the animal or animals as if they're just one big block versus us 
is, yeah. is, is part of the way this ideology is built into the language mm-hmm. because, um, you know, just calling us the human makes us the exception. So I guess human exceptionalism is another way of what I'm talking about. Sure. You know, I have a quip somewhere where I say human exceptionalism is like American exceptionalism. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is exceptional, but, yeah. but so is everything else. Right. So it's just, why is that exception the one that's held up as, as the avatar? So whenever I tried to look for a human essence, something like a soul, I mean, unless you're getting theological, that's a hard one to base it on. So where, where is human exceptionalism rooted in? Is it language? Well, then you look at whales, dolphins, and all sorts of other creatures who have communication, mm-hmm. quite sophisticated communication. Is it um, rationality? Um, in which case you look at the irrationalism of most human activity <laughs> and thought. <laughs> so I just started trying to check all the, all the historical reasons given for why humans are special. And none of them were really holding water, at least not a hundred percent. So, um, I mean, obviously there is a, there is something unique about humans, but they are also the, the reason technology became so fascinating to me is because we are the most dependent we are the creature that's incredibly dependent on technology. And we, mm. we, we spin that to be our, as we are masters of the universe, we are Prometheans, mm. but it could also be the opposite, right? It could be like, we are the animal that needs prosthesis. Mm. We need technology in order to be who we are. And so we don't even have an essence. We're like mm-hmm. this pathetic animal that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have an essence. And so we need, um, tools and artifacts to become who we think we are. Um, Freud called it prosthetic gods. But there's a nice little um, fable about this from the French philosopher Bernard Stiegler. I think it's the brother of Prometheus is in fact Epimetheus. And he was supposed to give out all all the qualities of all the creatures. And so he gave, you know, the cheetah speed. He gave the swan grace. And then when he came to humans, he looked in the, the bucket and there was nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is, I was really, really compelled by this idea that the humans actually not, not an animal plus, but an animal minus. Hmm. And we try to make up for that um, kind of disadvantage or, or default with, with technology. So it's like we're kind of this, we are in a symbiotic relationship with technology and it's not clear whether it's not a heroic story necessarily. Hmm. It's just a sort of, um, what do you call it? When two people are really codependent, <laughs> kind mm-hmm, of code- mm-hmm. codependent relationship. Hmm. Can I push back on that a little bit? Yeah, of because, course. Yeah. Um, I mean, just playing devil's advocate here or human humanity's advocate, if you will. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of understand that impulse to say like, yeah, we use technology, but so do monkeys or whatever, or yeah, we can uh, uh, communicate, but so do whales. Right. I, I, I get that. I do get that. Um, at the same time, 
I'm not going to say lower animals because that, that assumes my <laughs> point. Um, <laughs> other animals can maybe count objects. Ravens can count objects. They can't do differential calculus. You know, uh, other, other animals can use sticks to get termites. They can't build rockets that go to the moon. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like even if there's not a difference in kind there, there's a pretty sharp difference in degree, if that makes sense. Is, is that my own like human bias telling me that or? <laughs> Partly. I mean, I, again, I do think humans are exceptional. Mm-hmm. It's just whether that's a fact worth just celebrating mm. um, in the same equivalent of, you know, standing up at the national anthem and not going <laughs> beyond that. You sure. know, not, um, I mean, you're to, to be clear, you're a professor of humanities. So yeah, you obviously saw something in humanity worth devoting your life to. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because I spent the last five years trying to start a post-humanities program. Okay. <laughs> you um, want to talk about that a little bit? Because I'm really curious about that. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of borrowed with permission that term from Carrie Wolf, who's a huge figure in, in my field who has a publishing series and just been very influential in, in founding this subfield, I guess, or a new interdisciplinary field called the post-humanities. And again, these are people who've been trained the same way I have or similar. And it's not about pretending we're completely past it, mm-hmm. but just questioning it, just the way post-colonialism doesn't really name a state beyond completely free and beyond colonialism, but it it does register a a kind of different stage. Hmm. So the post-humanities are interested in who comes after the human Hmm. um, would be my my sort of shorthand way of asking that because the humanities has always assumed what the human is and it's very limited view usually of what the human is. Um, This is why we do need critical race theory, for instance. You know, the human is... There have been historical debates about what percentage of non-white people are human, you know, that kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. And obviously indigenous people didn't make out well in, in that history. So we're, um, I've lost my thread a bit, but it's, um, I guess it's the, oh yeah, the, the whole thing about we are exceptional in all those ways. Yes, agreed, but also um, kind of look where this that got us. This is maybe a Nietzschean point. Yeah. There's, and the new David Graeber book, which is getting a lot of um, press at the moment, has a similar argument that almost every other, well, he's using it, he's an anthropologist and he's using it in terms of other cultures. Other cultures other than the rampant modern West had checks and balances against going beyond limits and solidifying, you know, violent hierarchies and things like that. So mm-hmm. there is a reading of history where every indigenous culture ever understood the stakes of mm-hmm. um, scaling up a t- type of technology that Heidegger would call um, the kind that makes an unreasonable demand of nature. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. takes more than it gives. Mm-hmm. So everyone until we came along r- understood that if we go too far in that direction, the whole ecology would collapse Hmm. and so what we celebrate as sort of the triumph of the human is in fact kind of a sign of our 
will, willfulness and blind, blind spots. <laughs> um, there's a great book, a lovely book of, on a vampire squid by Willem Flusser, who's a kind of mischievous thinker. And he argues that the squid, the giant squid is like the anti-human. They're just as smart, but they went down into the ocean instead of <laughs> up into the up into this to the moon and their technology is embodied they don't have thumbs so they don't do the kind of technology we do but their color patterns for instance are just infinitely ingenious but we just don't know how to decode them hmm. which is an interesting conceit i mean there's no proof mm -hmm. for that but it's an interesting idea i mean i also love just cetaceans i mean they, they came onto land for several million years they looked around and went screw this we're going back to the ocean <laughs> and so you know it's like whales and dolphins saw the, the dangers of coming onto land growing thumbs and thinking you're the best thing ever mm. and um now they're they're seeing why so i mean mm. i mean I'm, I'm being somewhat glib but i i also think there's something to this um i think there's something healthy about uh questioning <laughs> human exceptionalism um, in a counterintuitive way, because I just think that's maybe helping us put the brakes on some of this rushing headlong towards the kind of places that Silicon Valley mm -hmm. is having us head, head, head towards. I mean, your example was going to the moon, but it wasn't splitting the atom. Hello, thank you so much for listening to Changed My Mind. I will get right back to that conversation you were just listening to. Uh, but before we do that, I wanna talk real quick about the Patreon. We are a listener-supported show. The donations are what keep the lights on. They help me pay my editor and my executive producer. And they are what keep this sort of thoughtful conversation online for listeners to hear. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash change my mind, that's P-A-T, reon.com slash change my mind. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Once you start supporting at $3 or more, benefits start kicking in. You'll get early access to episodes. And if you support at $5 or more, you will become a producer for the show, uh, which basically means that I'm gonna shout you out at the end of every episode. And also you can come to our strategy meetings on Zoom every month if you want. You um, don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can just be a fly on the wall and see how the magic happens uh, or see how the sausage is made, as the case may be. Um, so if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, please consider going online to patreon.com slash change my mind and becoming a supporter. Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. I really appreciate you. And I will flip you right back over to that conversation you were just listening to. I gotta say, um, I know you said you were you were being a little facetious when talking about whales saying "screw this" and going back in the ocean. <laughs> I, I do still feel like you're maybe maybe struggling to get away from a meta narrative there, like kind of, kind of imposing intent where there may not necessarily have been intent. Mm. Is that a fair criticism, or is that with the whales? Yeah, I mean that was that was mostly <laughs> for comic effect, but I. Yeah. I do. I mean, yeah. I mean, because if if I could rephrase a little bit, like I feel yeah. like saying 
we are doing this because we assume this underlying meta narrative. We should be doing this instead. Mm. Um, I feel like you're you're more arguing that we should substitute a meta narrative for the one we're using, as opposed to abandoning meta narratives altogether. Or is that yeah, does that I, even make sense? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's an interesting question, the extent to which we need a meta narrative to get the motivation to do something else. Right. As opposed to just being creatures of habit and defaulting to whatever this terrible thing is that we're in the midst of right now. <laughs> um, so if we're going to, help like kind of undo the damage that we've done and maximize the potential for not just human flourishing, but the planet as a whole, it might, it might behoove us to have a, a meta narrative or a counter narrative mm -hmm. about in terms of our potential, like where did we go wrong? When, when did humanity jump the shark is a question I like to ask my students <laughs> and you know, you can have all sorts of answers from 1974 to, <laughs> to like, yeah, the, the moment we started, the Kubrick moment when we picked up a bone and figured out we could hit someone over the head with it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's, the, that's a classic. In one edit, he does this narrative from the violence of the bone to the spaceship exploring mm -hmm. the cosmos. Hmm. Um, so I'm not, I mean, I'm not against big ambitions or, mm. um, they often tend to get us into trouble as the history of communism has shown mm. and things like that. So it's, I, I do, I agree with Graeber and, and, and others that there are lots of paths not taken or not taken in the right spirit or well enough where we could rethink our relationship to ourselves and to, you know, other, other creatures. Um, I think it's happening in all sorts of different weird ways um, and through imagination, through stories, through movies. Um, you know, the octopus teacher was a big hit on Netflix. It's a kind of fascinating, mm. almost love story between a man and an octopus. <laughs> so I think, I think there's a room for this. I mean, I think people are wary, becoming increasingly suspicious, like me, you know, of this uh, of, of default anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm. And but how that you know how that will manifest itself is is an open question. I mean, mm. um, how do you do it in more compassionate ways that aren't about disappearing into virtual reality or, um, you know, how do we get out of this? Clearly this is the direction we're going and the speed we're going is unsustainable. So, so mm. what do we do about that is the big question. Sure. Sure. Um, so why don't we talk about that for a second? Um, like how, how it plays out then, um, you mentioned veganism mm. earlier. Um, have you embraced veganism? Are you a vegan or? No, I'm a terrible hypocrite. <laughs> um, I mean, I try, I try and eat 
I mean, I try to be mostly a pescatarian and I have no justification for that other than Kurt Cobain (laughs) Um, and eat meat, you know, very occasionally as an iron supplement. But yeah, I mean, this is part of the problem is you can cognitively, intellectually feel something and believe something and then, but uh, certain habits continue nevertheless. So that's well, there's of, the physical reality of the human body, which needs certain nutrients, which can be hard to get. Yeah. People um, do hack that. Yeah. I mean, obviously more there ethical are. people than me <laughs> hack that, but um, so, yeah, but it's, uh, oh, that was your question about the, but where else might these things happen? You mean? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess. Yeah. If you want to talk about that. I mean, in settler countries, I mean, places like Australia and Canada um, hasn't happened so much in the U.S. yet, but uh, a, re, a reappreciation of or, or initial appreciation of indigenous knowledges mm-hmm. that, that um, it wasn't just simply a, a less evolved form of civilization or culture, but it was a, just a different one that also had... had very sophisticated understandings. Speaking of technology, like some of the hunters in the Amazon had, you know, jewelry that would help um, pick up really distant sounds. And I mean, the, the, the sort of uh, things look differently if you if you don't assume linear progress and that the West is the the vanguard of that. And yeah, I just think intelligence. We don't have the monopoly on intelligence. We just have equated intelligence with a certain type of abstract thought, symbolic thought, mm-hmm. and um, tool use. Whereas, uh, you know, bees might represent a form of intelligence, even if one individual bee doesn't seem terribly bright to us. <laughs> sure. No, I mean, yeah. yeah, that's that's always been my beef with the word intelligence. Is it? It can mean so many different things to so many people. Yeah. But people treat it as if it means like one thing. The IQ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I guess, I guess the IQ has been shown to have at least some correlation with academic success. Mm. Um, but, but that's tailoring the, right. That's tailoring the criteria <laughs> to the object. Right. Right. I mean, it's pre presupposing what intelligence means yeah. in order to um, test for it. Yeah. And AI, I mean, speaking of intelligence, artificial intelligence is really pushing this now. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, science fiction has already speculated on what it'll mean when uh, AI can learn faster than humans. Mm-hmm. I do like the film Her for this reason. It's, it's sure. scenario for that. But some of these new machine learning programs for writing are pretty amazing. You know, they, they really question... They really make us question what human creativity is because they're spitting out pretty amazing poems <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that rival anything by, um, you know, our, our, our most celebrated poets. So it's there's there's something generic maybe about the input, sophisticated inputs of information and outputs that don't need a, what we think of as a soul but they may be mm. just as valid or just as interesting um, or compelling. So it's, that's really, I mean, as a writer, this really challenges me 
because I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I might be completely out of a job <laughs> um, and a purpose, even a meaning of life, if we can just create novels and stories by pressing a button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a like, fellow writer, I sympathize. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a really nice piece in the new N plus one about this. I think her name's Megan O'Gleven, something I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm sure. But it's about this really um, cutting edge machine learning software and it's 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 brilliant literature (laughs) but that's another thing where maybe humans are i love you know again just as a provocation i love marsha McLuhan's statement that maybe humans are just the sex organs of the machine world Hmm. we had it the wrong way around we thought we were the stars of the show but actually we're just midwives for whatever comes next and that might be Hmm. ai well, that's an interesting place to end up. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this. Uh, aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? Just that, yeah, that deeply held beliefs that seem very, very deep and anchored in there. Um, don't, even if they're wrong, they might you know, the spirit of the thing might be just continued with a different set of values or, mm. or, you know, a different agenda. So I don't feel like that was wasted. All that human humanism and human exceptionalism wasn't like just a waste of time Mm-mm. because it is, it does, there's sort of, it comes with aesthetics. It comes with um, sensibility that you can reorient <laughs> So even if you're in a cult, for instance, and then you realize it's a cult, it shouldn't be like that was completely, I mean, it's up to you how you want to interpret that. But sure. I think having seen people who've grown up in very intense evangelic, evangelical settings and things, but then become brilliant philosophers and whatever, it's all, I mean, changing your mind is part of having a mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I doubt you, therefore I am. Right? Yeah. You don't want it to be, <laughs> you don't want a mind that's so closed. It's just a black box and you don't want it so open that everything keeps falling out. You know, obvious, obvious kind of points like that, I suppose, but I'm not great at meta lessons or the moral of the story. <laughs> I, I'm better at asking questions. So I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure how I would, how I'd really answer that one. Hmm. All right. Well, I have three questions I like to close out with, try to poke at my guests with this um, philosophical, ontological, epistemological stuff. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Hmm. Uh, Having talked to you for 45 minutes and (laughs) read some of your book, I, I'm sure you'll have interesting answers. Um, First of all, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity and how do you know, how do you know your identity? What do you think? Oh boy. I mean, you're, <laughs> it's bad news always asking a, a professor this kind of stuff because we're sort of uh, terminally against pippy and like answers, right? It's like, oh, it's complicated. We have to 
before I answer, we have to have this, 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 and this in place. But, but to try and force it into a nutshell, um, just like I think, you know, my book, Human Error, the title is about, kind of suggests that the human is an, an error, a mistake. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I try to argue that um, hum, humans are an, a sort of ongoing identity crisis. So identity, I would say, is a, is a kind of useful fiction or delusion mm-hmm. that a series of misrecognitions, and it, and it kind of, it tends to emerge through what Freud called the, narciss- the narcissism of minor differences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, and we see this play in, uh, playing out in our politics all the time, that who you are is very much who you are not. So it's negatively produced. Mm-hmm. I, I have a course on food, for instance, and I, one of the things we talk about is how it's not so much a case of you are what you eat, but you are what you don't eat. <laughs> that's, that's sort of how we define identity negatively against. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, in the book about love, I try to talk about... Um, a type of being that we can imagine it's called, I get this from the Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, whatever being like a type of being that has no essence, which would mean, you know, you're not Italian. You're not, you know, communist. You're not this or that it's mm-hmm. based. It would be the, it would encourage a community of those who have nothing in common. So I think, I, I just think identity is overrated <laughs> and I could, I could get in trouble for this in, an, in the age of identity politics, because being a, you know, a white guy, it's very easy for me to say identity is overrated because I have the default identity, mm-hmm. but I think there have been, you know, people of color and queer people and others who understand um, that doubling down on a specific identity um, it can, it's a double-edged sword. It can give you the solace of community, but it can also um, be the basis of exclusion and all sorts of things like that. Mm. So, I mean, the, the, the sort of anarchists and others think that as soon as you identify yourself, you've been locked into the grid, you know? So it's... But then they go ahead and identify themselves as anarchists. As anarchists. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's tenacious for sure. And it's, it's not like I'm going to transcend it, but I do think identity is um, problematic and complicated and very different to how you identify yourself versus how someone else identifies you. And that's where a lot of the, obviously that's where a lot of the pain and trauma comes from. Yeah. What is when you're labeled as something that you don't feel you are. Like two weeks ago, I was interviewing um, Walter Ben Michaels for this show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, author of uh, Trouble with Diversity and other other books. Um, I asked him, uh, I asked him the identity question. And he just went, identity means nothing. <laughs> I was like, I appreciate your candor. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think I disagree. <laughs> But, yeah, but it does have effects, right? The, yeah. the, the identity delusion or whatever we might want to call it. I mean, I, I also, I'm not a philosopher, so I, I do, I'm not great with these 
sort of no context questions because I mm-hmm. think it it really can depend. Like, obviously, again, indigenous identifying as an indigenous person in a specific context can be really important for for legal reasons, for um, all sorts of reasons. Um, so it's not like I just think, oh, we should all get rid of our identities like our clothes and run around in a sort of ontological nudist colony. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think we always have to be mindful of some kind of context. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right, second, what is human nature? Are we all, <laughs> this, I mean, this, this is like literally your entire body of work, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. But I, I usually say, are we all the same deep down? Are we all different or are we all blank slates? Uh, mm. Are my usual follow-ups? What do you think? Yeah, well, I do try... I do try to kind of ban that phrase from my classroom because too often it's just invoked as a way to exp- to explain things without explaining <laughs> things. Right? It's just like why do yeah, we- I mean it's it's a phrase used to kind of reify your own assumptions about what yeah, people are. Exactly. Typically, it's like, yeah. Why does this happen? Well, it's just human nature. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, if you've done anthropology at all, you know that human nature is incredibly flexible, and this, sure. But at the same time, there are continuities and we all have to deal with you know exchange and there are sort of human defaults so human nature i i used to define that as an oxymoron right so i'd say the human is whatever is unnatural Hmm. so it's the human is the thing that um has sort of self-catapulted self-catapulted itself out of nature Hence its, mm. hence its issues. Um, there's a quote from Nietzsche that I love. I, I wrote it down so I'd remember it. Sure. I fear that the animals regard man as a creature of their own kind, which has in a highly dangerous fashion lost its healthy animal reason. Mm. And I love how animal reason is, is there. <laughs> so we're the mad animal, the laughing animal, the weeping animal, the unhappy animal. <laughs> Or I, and then Freud would say the, the neurotic animal. <laughs> so I think human nature is describes that kind of tension between an animal that has denatured itself to yeah. the extent where it's, it, it's alienated from its environment. And um, Georges Bataille has a beautiful phrase for animal life. He imagines the animal as water within water. Hmm. And that sounds like a pretty beautiful state to be in. I'm not sure, you know, if you're a lab rat, it really feels like that. But um, there's a romance to that. But that's because he there's a the sort of romance about the human as that exception. So as you said, yeah, everything I've ever written has been an attempt to un- answer that question. So I can't really distill it, but that's maybe one way to do it. I'm trying to wrap my head around that water within water thing. What, what, what does that mean exactly? That there's no distinction between you and your environment. You flow okay. inside it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, whereas we are constantly bumping up against things mentally, physically. We feel isolated. We're individuals. We can't, you know whereas an animal just is. Mm. <laughs> and mm. uh, I mean, it might be overstated, that distinction, but it's, it's, 
it's it's a way to start thinking about it. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, and finally, what is truth? <laughs> how do you know truth, and how do you know when you found truth? What do you think? Yeah, this is the one that I really don't know what to say. <laughs> I feel almost I feel almost guilty how little I care about truth, especially in <laughs> especially in twenty twenty one. Mm. Um, so well, again, the world doesn't seem to care much about truth. <laughs> no, and that makes me think maybe I should start caring about truth again. And there is something to be said that the whole postmodernism thing led to this crisis. So I shouldn't just keep repeating the mantra about <laughs> truth. So again, we might reverse engineer it. And I don't know what it is. I know it's important, especially in, you know, in the context that as we talk, there's the Carl Rittenhouse trial, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think in those contexts, truth is really important. Mm-hmm. But, um, but again, my kind of half glib answer, but also the start of something more sincere is truth is the, the baby that we've thrown out with the bathwater. It's what's missing in the, <laughs> in, in the post-truth era. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, it's not like I think there's this transcend. It's not a pl- platonic ideal. Um, that's always going to be different perspectives on things. So truth, in some ways, is a cultural invention, but there is also fact. Um, yeah. So so yeah. I, I I truth will. Truth troubles me to the. I just kind of bracket that off really, mm. because I can only deal with so much and truth is, <laughs> truth is sort of a bridge too far for sure. someone who um, it's for me, it's more about generating questions that oblige us to be self-reflexive in compassionate ways. And my hope is that truth will be less at stake in those conditions because it's, you know, you're not, I mean, it's always going to be at stake, but but the hope is that no one will be claiming a, a really massive truth where the stakes are so high that if you don't believe in it, you're going to be killed. <laughs> you know. Sure. So it's about kind of re, re reassessing our relationship to truth, and then trying to trying to find it. Like, why do we prize it so highly as this capital T thing that we are willing to, you know, literally sometimes kill people who don't see it the same way? Hmm. I appreciate that. I want to ask one more thing. Um, and maybe maybe this is a, a stupid question, but I got to ask it. If truth is the baby that we threw out with the bathwater, what's the bathwater in this analogy? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the discourse, I guess. The discourse. The okay. discourse. The, just the media. Just whatever that river of the the popular imagination. Whatever kind of collective understanding we have in this strange real time rush. That's why I have a book on social media as well. They, I, it looks like I talk about very different things, but they are they are kind of connected actually. And so, um. Yeah, the the bathwater. I think we, you know, the Heraclitus thing. You never step in the same bathwater twice. 
could see that in in Twitter as well. Sure, absolutely. All right. Well, um, Dominic, it has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure, Luke. Thanks so much. Um, Before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your work? Uh, Sure. Just, um, well, DominicPetman.com is my site that has a lot of my writings and points you into videos and stuff. But yeah, I think if you're into animals, you should probably check out Creaturely Love, which is a book I'm maybe especially fond of, kind of argues that we don't love each other necessarily for our humanness, but for Mm. our repressed animality. (laughs) Um, And the newest book is called Peak Libido, uh, Sex Ecology and the Collapse of Desire. And that that asks, what is the carbon footprint of your libido? Mm. So that's, yeah. That sounds like a really interesting question. I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington, and you can email the show at changemymindpod at gmail.com. And I will see you next time. Eleven years ago, um, almost to the day as I record this, uh, this was November 19th, 2010, um, there was a blog post that went kind of massively viral around the internet. Um, Again, this was 2010. This was back when blogs still actually kind of mattered (laughs) to the internet. Um, But there was a blog called, it was originally called The Voracious Vegan, and it was by a, a woman who just went by Tasha. Um, I looked around the internet. I, I can't find any sign of her anymore. The blog is long gone. Um, but you can still find this post using um, the Wayback Machine or inter- other internet archiving services if you want to. Um, but it was a cooking blog. You know, She shared her favorite vegan recipes for several years. Um, but then in 2010, she publishes this post called A Vegan No More. Um, where she kind of tells her story of, uh, you know, how she gave up veganism, um, mainly for health reasons. Like she was having, she was losing hair, having horrible heart palpitations, couldn't keep on weight. Um, just, you know, nothing seemed to help. Um, and within a month she was the picture of health, at least according to her. Right. Um, now as you can imagine, this post got the usual slate of responses, everybody from like the crowing carnivores who were glad to see a vegan fall, you know, to like the indignant vegans, um, some of whom sent her death threats, apparently, uh, which, yes, is probably ironic if you are a vegan because you allegedly care about all life, but whatever. Um you know, and I, I don't know, like, a lot of people were accusing her of being like a false flag for the meat industry or whatever, which seems unlikely because the piece is very explicitly anti-factory farming and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know how much truth there was to it and how much it was just like, uh, you know, a woman trying to justify her own decision to eat meat, even though she had conscientious objections to it. I have no idea. Um, 
and I don't particularly care either, you know, like if, if, if it works for her, that's great. What really struck me about it when I read it though, was not so much, um, the question of is vegan a healthy diet or like the question of, is she a real person telling a real story? Um, it was the way that she pointed out that all eating is necessarily killing something, you know, and not just in the sense that yes, plants are alive too, not just in the sense that, you know, you can't grow plants without some sort of pest control and, you know, not even in the sense that like tractors are inevitably going to run over marmots or whatever, like, but in the sense that using land for agriculture is a choice that has consequences on the environment, whether you want it to or not. If you take a plot of wild land and convert it into farmland for growing whatever foods vegans eat, um, you are affecting the environment, um, whether you want to be or not. And, you know, the same goes for importation of foods, right? She says in her, uh, in her blog post that people were telling her, hey, you need to eat these foods to balance out your vegan nutrition. And she was just like, well, those are foods that have to be shipped halfway around the world to get to me. That cannot possibly uh, redu be reducing my carbon footprint the way, you know, veganism was sold to me as this, as this uh, diet that will reduce my carbon footprint. And of course, that sort of environmental pollution, again, results in deaths. Um, I'm going to read just one paragraph from this blog post. It's a long paragraph from a long blog post. This was back when people would still read long things on the internet. Um, I'm just going to read one paragraph to give you the gist of this environmental argument she's making. She says, in my own life, my decision to return to my omnivorous ways is drastically shrinking my carbon footprint. The truth that as a vegan I did not like to face is that most places on this planet are not suited for annual grain agriculture, but for a mix of plant and animal husbandry. Most ecosystems on this planet simply cannot support annual grain agriculture, and the urging by vegans for the inhabitants to adopt a vegan lifestyle anyway is damning them to an eventually desiccated land base and inevitable starvation. Saudi Arabia, where I live, is one of those places. Now, instead of relying on grains and beans grown overseas with pesticides and seriously unsustainable farming methods to form the bulk of my diet, I can now turn my focus towards local animal products such as goat, lamb, or chicken. For example, I can go to the local market and buy goat meat from goat herds that graze just a few miles away over the open desert, herded by Bedouins from an oasis to oasis in a centuries-old tradition. These goats make use of dry and scrubby land that would be completely unsuitable for crop farming, and they drink ancient artisanal well water, artisanal being a very trendy word in 2010. Anyway, if the land they use was transformed into huge swaths of crop fields, it would require staggering amounts of synthetic fertilizer and imported water, and it would wreck the delicate ecosystem that currently exists in the desert. Not only do I feel better physically and mentally as an omnivore, but my choices are much more consistent with my conviction that we need to live as ethically and sustainably as possible within our local community. Now, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with, uh, with that paragraph, um, but what really did strike me about it was that the choice to live 
is almost necessarily the choice to make something else die. Um, the world we live in has a limited amount of energy and other resources available. And the choice to use that energy and resources to keep yourself alive is necessarily the choice to kill something else, no matter how ethical you try to be about it. Um, and that, that applies to, you know, kind of a universal as a universalism of we're all living creatures, but I think it applies to just straight human humanism as well. Right? Like the choice to use a resource is the choice to not allow someone else to use that resource. Um, and ultimately, we're all okay with killing someone. I know there are, you know, very complicated ethical frameworks that have been drawn up, but ultimately, every ethical framework boils down to a question of who are you okay with killing? Anyway, that's it for this week. If you like the show, if you like what I'm doing, please take a second to give me a review on Apple Podcasts. Every little review helps the show in the algorithms, helps people discover it. Uh, so I would really appreciate it. If you review it, I will read your review live on the air and make you internet famous and your mom will be so proud. Um, if you want to support me financially, I do have a Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash changed my mind. And you can support the show there for as little as $1 a month. Um, once you support it at higher levels, the benefits start kicking in. You get early access to episodes. You get direct access to me and my producer, who is probably smarter than me. I don't know. Most people are. Um, <laughs> Once again, you can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. Please email us and let us know what you think about the weird stuff we're saying on this show. Um, quick reminder, while I'm thinking of it, if you like my work and just can't get enough of it, um, I do have a Substack. It is at luketharrington.substack.com, and it is much more freeform than the show. I just kind of write about what's on my mind which is usually fiction or movies or the publishing industry or whatever's bugging me that week. Um, it is free. And if you sign up, you get immediate access to eBooks of both my published books. So that's my um, psychological thriller, Ophelia Alive, and my humor book about the Bible, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem. None of that has anything to do with the sort of thing I do on this show, but if you like me and you like my work, it's there. So that's luketharrington.substack.com. Change My Mind is produced by Tamar Harrington. If you would like to be a producer for the show, become a supporter on Patreon. Our executive producer is Blake Collier. Our editor is Jonathan Clausen, and we are presented by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to change my mind and please don't be afraid to change your mind. <laughs>